I heard a pastor one time tell a story about the adoption of his two sons from an orphanage in Russia. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Russian orphanages are a, are a very chilling place because it's there that infants learn not to cry. Infants learn not to cry. Why? Because nobody comes from them. Nobody answers their cries. So this pastor tells a story about how he went there and he spent a week there and he was reading to his children and he was singing to his children and he was playing with his children and they were ready to take him home and then all of a sudden something happened and he had to fly back to the States. So as they were like, okay, we'll be right back. We'll be back in just a couple days. As they put their baby in the crib and they're beginning to leave, he said it was the most eerie thing that he's ever felt. Why? Because this child did not cry. And so as he gets to the door, he hears the most terrible but lovely thing that he's ever heard. They heard a cry from their son. Their almost adopted son began to cry. And with that one cry, with that one cry, an orphan became a son. An orphan became a son. Something happened to that child that didn't happen to any other child in any of the other cribs. That child felt compelled. That child felt urged to cry out for a dad. I just kept thinking all week, but what caused that? See, something similar happens in the Bibles that you are holding. If you were to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you would read a sharp shift from Old Testament to New. The Old Testament is determined by the thought of God's holiness, God's reverence. I mean, you cannot read the Old Testament without walking away with a strong whiff of one's own smallness and one's own sinfulness. You read again and again, if you've spent any time reading the Old Testament, a stressing to keep your distance from God. Keep your distance from the presence of God. This, I'm assuming that maybe for some of the unchristians here or some of the wavering Christians here, is frustrating. We hear that and go, yeah, see, God in the Old Testament. So stick with me then, because Jesus, when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament changes the color of everything. Not because God is less holy or because we are less sinful, but there is a relational shift and nobody, nobody saw it coming. Theologian J.R. Packer, he's a beast. He says it like this, and I fervently agree. And take, those, you know, take note those here who aren't Christian. He says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a simple phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. Do you see the sort of marrying of the two Old and New Testament, Creator and Father? If you, want to, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. Being God's child and having God as his Father. What once was keep your distance is now, if you have a nightmare in the middle of the night, run into your father in your mother's bed, bounce around and, and, and hang out with them in their bed. Like be as close as possible for any possible thing at 2 a.m. This was the relational shift that Jesus Christ brought from constant threat to total belonging. Oh, mama, yes, please. Christians, this is fundamental fundamental to how you read the Bible, to how I read the Bible, to how we pray, to why in the world we're even here, to worship, to our identity. This is fundamental. 
Packer again just says this. This is just a little cherry on top. I liked it. He says, when asked what is a Christian, Packer says, the question can be answered in many, many ways. But the richest, but the richest I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. So I see all of that. I intro all of that, that present fundamental reality and identity is only real because of what the Holy Spirit is doing now. It is by him that we can cry like a child in an orphanage. I think if you've been Christian again for a while, I think probably a lot of us get, oh, the whole family thing with Father God or with, 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 oh yeah, with the Son, Jesus Christ. Just by the title alone, we sort of get it. But I think the role of the Holy Spirit and the relational dynamics of father and child are a little bit more mysterious to us. See, what's telling is, with this important doctrine, what's telling is, is out of the four or five times Paul mentions the word adoption, it's synced up with the Holy Spirit. Clearly, these two are inseparable. So then, our question should not just be if, our question is to be what? What is the role of the Holy Spirit? What is the function of the Holy Spirit in our relationship as children to God the Father? And hopefully, I mean, I just kind of hope that's just throughout all of this that we sort of discover that the Holy Spirit has a role in things that are maybe challenging to understand. It's one of those things where it's like, I'm dealing with temptation. Blam, you need the Holy Spirit. I don't know how to witness to my neighbor. Whammy, Holy Spirit. I don't know how to understand Jesus Christ, or excuse me, the Holy Spirit's relationship to us and with, with, with God and us as children and the whole Father thing. So I want everybody to realize that as we go through this series, we're trying to communicate over and over again. I am trying to communicate as a Bible teacher that our goal isn't to try to give these most perfect labels and to fit everything into like neat categories or 280 characters regarding the Holy Spirit. One of our main goals in having this series was to overcome pitfalls, perplexities regarding the daily function and activity of the Spirit. And I'll say this before, and I think this kind of freaks people out, but essentially, we want to know experientially. We want to know experientially, not just theoretically, something only the Holy Spirit can do. So we as Collective Church, we've said it the last few weeks, we're going to say it again. We will desire right proper, good, godly experience to seize and live into what the scriptures have to say. So, so with that, we're going to look into the scriptures right now for guidance. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 8, if you have one of the borrowed Bibles, it's page um, 550 for you. So not only are we just obviously looking into the Bible, but just so everybody knows, we're looking into one of the most magnificent passages in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And I'll say this before we begin reading, that this is perhaps the most wonderful part of Romans chapter 8, just so it has it like a bug in our ear type of thing. Romans chapter 8 tells us how to change. Romans chapter 8 tells us how. Want to know? Spoiler alert. Romans chapter 8 unblurs the Holy Spirit. This blew my mind today. I tried to tell it to my wife, and she wasn't that interested. I explained. I was like, this is amazing, and she kind of did one of these. Not really. Here's what I shared with her. Prior to this chapter, I'm going to be in so much trouble. Prior to this chapter, the Holy Spirit is mentioned one time in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 8 alone, it's mentioned nearly 20 times. And I, I was like, ah, and she's like, eh. <laughs> 
I think that's amazing. Paul unblurs the Holy Spirit, and this entire chapter has to do with how in the world we change. So for those here who are looking for meaningful change, for those here right now who are like, I just need a change in my life. For the first time you're here and you're like, I'm ready for a change in my life. Well then, Romans chapter 8 is a sort of architectural blueprint for you and for me. So starting in verse 12. Guys, I wish it could be exhausted in Romans 8, but it can't. Verse 12. Paul goes off, We are the debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you lived according to the flesh, you will die. We talked about that pretty extensively in week one. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. If we were to do a little fun word association game right now, and I were to say, tell me the first thought that enters your mind when I say dad, or when I say pops, or when I say father, I'd be super curious what sort of emotions that may bubble up. See, what Paul, the author of Romans, is addressing right here is he's sort of bringing up a, um, well, in my opinion, a beautiful mess. I say that because, in my opinion, he's touching on the open wound of our generation. What is that? Fathers. What we have been calling fundamental, a change from the inside out, is simultaneously one of the hardest reconciliations of what is and what wasn't. Being fathered by God, while at the same time, probably the vast majority of us having daddy issues. I can't even imagine the different levels of curiosity or frustrations or catch dad and leave it to beaver and let's get out there and him reading Bible stories to every night and these super epic moments. And for others, it's fear. It's terrorizing. As a pastor to speak to people, a group of any size, about father, about God being their father, is risky. It can be risky. Because again, it's more than possible that this might anger or confuse some. You see, if your upbringing was less than perfect or rough or traumatic, then for the vast majority, there is a sever in reconciling how God wants to be related with and our ability to do so. There's a sever. Reason being, our parents are our first divine image of God. Our parents, your dad and my dad, as children, as babies, are our first divine image of God. And if you're a parent right now, that should scare the living crap out of you. Especially dads, you share the same name with God the Father. That is, oh mama. This is a beautiful thing that our parents, or we as parents, share a divine image with God. It is a beautiful thing. But if perverted, it is a dangerous thing. The behavior and character of your mother and father, of my mother and father, permanently imprints deep within our core, that is what God must be like. That is what God must be like. My dad was that way. That's what God must be like. So an authoritarian father, an abusive father, an absent father, an accusing father, more often than not, finds its way as a filter or a prejudice and thus floods God the Father in a certain light. Now, here's the thing, whether we know it or not. 
If I sit down and I have a moment to talk with you, or if you sat down and had a moment to talk with a therapist, and we began talking and some of your, your issues or, or some of your severance stuff with God, and I was able to ask you deeper and deeper what your parents would like, I'm going to put a lot of money on that horse that your parents, the issues that you're having with God is because of your parents or a little bit more this way or that way. Thus, when this happens, an authoritarian God, an abusive God, an absent God, an accusing God, I know this firsthand. I know this. I am the King Kong of father wound. I, for those of you who know about the sabbatical, half of the reason I went on the sabbatical and the majority of the work was to make sure that God was releasing me or that people were helping me or community come, was coming around me to sort of unbuckle and undo all these prejudices I have towards God's because of past fathers and stepdads. So because of this fracture with most of us here, not all of us, Due to sin and society, we have been given the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. The power and presence of God and the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So verse 15, one more time. I want this to sink in. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Adoption, adoption, adoption. Galatians 4, just to reinforce it, that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are the sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is this sort of like Ziploc sealing spirit of adoption. Now, I know for some, I'm assuming that maybe this is true if you have been adopted, or you're considering adoption, or you've just thought about adoption, that there could be this idea that adoption means second class. I'm not part of the bloodline, so I'm second class. It's like a Jon Snow type thing. Does that make sense? It's like, oh, no, no, no. He's not blood. Not true. Not true in Roman culture. This is where Paul's metaphor about this unbelievable doctrine explodes in the most beautiful of ways. So this is not true in the Roman culture. In the Roman culture, if a father looked out over his one, two, ten children, and he wasn't feeling any of them, he's like, oh, this, this bunch, mm-mm. No, spank you. If he was looking over and it was like nothing, go guess what he would do? Also, just a little bit of text work, just so this should be done. This should be said. Adoption back there in the Roman culture, when it was talking about heir and inheritance, it'd obviously be more male to carry on the family name. So Paul describes it here as all Christians, men and women as sons. So anyway, so if a father was looking over his current bloodline, he wasn't feeling it. None of them deemed worthy enough to inherit his name, to inherit his estate, to inherit his title, his office. Guess what he would do? He'd hop on down to an orphanage of some sort, and he would choose. He would pick. An adopted child in the Roman system is a child chosen for the purpose of inheriting the estate and bearing his name. Get this. Ultimately, as one commentary puts it, adopted children are the preferred of God. An adopted child is the preferred of God. It means you are choice. You are likable. You are lovable. And the status in Romans 8 is unconditional. There's nothing conditional about this. Like, oh, we can break the adoption. <laughs> My mother, a few years ago, adopted four children. She had a total empty nest. We thought she was going to be living the high life, and then she surprises us, and she adopts four children. Three of those four children were siblings. Um, sadly, uh, they were the most uh, sexually abused children in the foster care system within Arizona. 
They were the most broken and beat kids in the entire foster care system. So um, they had gone from house to house, from abuse to abuse, from brokenness to brokenness, constantly, until my mother adopted them. Their stories, which my mother has tried to tell my wife and I in times past, is it'll make your stomach sick. It is revolting what they have gone through. But when my mother adopted them, the kids could not comprehend it. They didn't understand it all. Meaning, when there was an argument, or bad grades, or spilt milk, or the kids were over, or they thought the parents was over it, or when things got challenging, they just thought, oh, we're leaving. Well, let's go. They just, the, the fear of leaving was constant. Oh, you're not going to boot us? You're not going to hit us? You're not going to hurt us? You're not going to reject us? It took my mother every day, she told me, for months upon months upon months upon months to help them see that they are preferred. They are choice. And then one day, she called me or my wife and I, and she told us this beautiful story where it kind of just clicked. And she said that Peter... Here's what's beautiful. I'll just tell you the side story. They were given satanic names because at a young age, they were married to Satan by a horrific father. They're, they're given satanic names. So the first thing my mom wanted to do was change their names. So they let her, she let her, let the kids pick their own names. So I have a little brother named Peter Parker. <laughs> no joke. It's amazing. He's obsessed with superheroes, and, and it's a really beautiful thing. Uh, so we have this little, I have a little brother named Peter Parker, but what's gorgeous about this is Peter comes up one day and he just clicks with him and he goes, he goes, no, 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 I get it. And then he said these beautiful words. He goes, this is my forever home. And I thought that was beautiful. It clicked. Oh, this is my forever home. Romans 8 tells us that not only are we adopted, but the spirit of God, his role, the Holy Spirit's role every day. Every day is to tell us when there is spilt milk or bad grades or falling into sin or there's anger issues or thoughts of giving up on the church or thoughts of giving up on faith. The Holy Spirit is there every day like my mom was to those children saying, no, 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 no. This is a forever home. Nothing you can do, nothing I can do can undo that. So it is not only an objective fact, what we read in Scripture, what we're looking at, but our belonging, Christians, is a subjective assurance brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ and made known every day by the Holy Spirit. But after saying all of that, so we just talk about that. After saying all that, and this could be risky and father wound, as I was sitting with this passage, as I was doing my own work this year, dealing with father wound type stuff, what I realized, and I wanted to share with you because I believe it's true for the vast majority of us, what I realized is that's not the risky part. Talking about God as Father is not the risky part because I, as a very much broken man, it's not a challenge for me to acknowledge my dad lives in Oceanside. My dad don't like him. We haven't spoken in years. He doesn't like me. It just is what it is, but it's not a challenge for me to go, yeah, I got a dad in Oceanside. What of it? But if you told me my father longed for a deepness between us. Yamahama. Pass. Move along. You see, it's, it's the cry. It's the crying part that is risky in what we're talking about tonight from Scripture. 
I'd say the hang-up for most of us is actually the Spirit's role. The exact role the Spirit has in that family relationship is the risky part. That's why we need to talk about it. So you have received a spirit of adoptions by whom we cry, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Only by the Spirit can we do this. So what this is meaning is that there's an intensity upon which we are to relate with God. There is such an intensity by how God wants to be related with that it rattles us. It's too, it, if we squirm, it's like, oh, mom, you're, com- you're, you're coming on thick. Right, exactly. Exactly. See, the word cry, in its meaning, translates to this. A loud cry signifying deep emotion. A loud cry signifying deep emotion. None of this single tear down our cheek because Sarah McLaughlin is singing about dogs in cages. None of that. It's like, oh man, that got me every time. What's for dinner? No. This is ugly crying. Ugly crying. Ooze from our nose that could turn like turtles into ninja turtles. That type of ooze dripping from our nose. Ugly, ugly crying. A baby in a Russian orphanage type loud cry. But what are we crying for? Well, like John 14 says, we are not left as orphans. So we are loud crying with deep emotion for what? For Abba. Which is an Aramaic tender word meaning Papa or Daddy or my own. It's like my own. It has a very possessive nature to it. Not this weird like, oh, uh, George Washington is the father of our country. No, that's this regal sort of father. This is like, no, 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 no. My own dad. I'm, I've told you this story before, but I'll say it again. But something I'm really good at is infuriating my children. How, you ask? I'll tell you. I tell them I have two other children. So I have two kids, but I always tell them I've got four. And their names are Stephen and Rachel, and they live in Indianapolis. And anytime I travel, I tell them I'm visiting my kids in Indianapolis. So anytime I go anywhere, they're like, where are you going? It's like, Stephen and Rachel. And my kids are always like, show me a picture. I'll pull up on Google a picture of two kids, and I'll be like, there they are, Stephen and Rachel. And they're my favorite, and I love them. I tell them this all the time. This ignites such a fury with my children. You have no idea. My daughter grabbed my cheeks and made me promise that if you ever do this again, I think she's like, I will beat you up. Like, she goes, this is what she said. She goes, no, no, no. You're my daddy. No, 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 no. I'm not sharing you. You are my daddy. Is what she'll scream. Is what she'll argue. Is what she'll fight with me on. This unbelievably possessive, personal language and relationship. So much so that our, my kids are super jealous. No, 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 no. Abba. See, Abba is to be used by those who desire, again, a personal language and a personal relationship with Jesus. Think about how beautiful this is. If this hasn't struck you yet, struck you yet. The term Abba, this is the language of Jesus. The term Abba is how Jesus talked to the Father. See, an Orthodox Jewish man or woman, if they were found back in the day using God's name, they would be stoned, executed. But Rabbi Jesus comes onto the scene, and guess what he starts doing? 
No, Pops, what's up, Daddy? Yeah, Dad this, Dad that. Oh, yeah, well, I'm being hurt, my dad up there. He's just going nuts, and everybody's like, oh, what? And he's so scandalous when he does this that he takes it a step further, and he starts telling other people, and they go, no, no, no. Jesus is like, no, no, no. You start calling him that, too. Execution time, button press, now. Get this guy out of here unbelievably scandalous, scandalous, scandalous. Jesus is saying, you call him dad. You be personal. You be intimate. Remember, everything we know of the Old Testament says, keep your distance. Now Jesus is saying, run towards him. Grab onto his leg. Ask him for a cup of juice. If you remember, Jesus is teaching the world how to pray. Remember, he models how to pray. What were his very first words? Our Father. See, if it doesn't feel natural, I would say this, good. It's like, oh, that's hard, I can't, good. It's not supposed to be natural. It's scandalous. We're supposed to say Father when referring to God of the cosmos, and we're supposed to realize that with such gravity and gratitude that it should make us squirm a little bit. That's why the Spirit knows that, and he is the initiator and the bridge of this insane relationship only made possible by Jesus Christ. So I'm going to say this, and I'm going to repeat myself a bunch, but just so we all realize, that level of deepness is how God wants to be related with. That's how God wants to be related with. Christians, that's how God wants to be related with. Unchristians, that's how God wants to be related with. Yet... It's so radical, and it's so uncomfortable, and it's so exposing, and it's so, like I've been saying, squirmy, and so wonderful that a lot of us would rather choose religion's framework other than, you know, gospel framework. Meaning, Romans 8 and Galatians 4, which I referenced, gives us two categories of relationships. Did you notice that? There's two categories of where you and I will all fall. Verse 15, one more time. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Paul draws a distinction between two spirits, two ways of thinking about and relating to God. Constrained or a child? Slaves or sons and daughters? Fearful or family? Notice these categories aren't Christian or unchristian. Mm -mm. Why? Because Christians, too, fall into a spirit of, uh, I must perform well, or he may not pay me. Christians, too, fall into, I must do good, so he will answer my prayers. Christians, too, fall into, I better not sin, or I, better, I won't get what I want. Christians, too, fall into, I better serve at a church, so he'll protect me. Ultimately, because of what happens, if we don't perform properly, then what? Put some butter on us because we're toast, right? Like, See, exposing that thought process, religion's framework, exposing that God is the big bad boss. God is the slave master. God is a judge. So that change in our place before God, which happens with Jesus, it's done. It's done. You have the justification, which is the legal side. You have the adoption, which is the familia, family side. It's done. The problem that we constantly run into by the Holy Spirit here is to help us change within our own self-understanding. 
It is a paradigm shift. It is an astonishing shift, so much so that the Holy Spirit had to be sent to help us. So if you have put your trust in Jesus, here's what the Holy Spirit is saying to you today. No longer live as slaves. Be done living as slaves. That was former thought. That was religious thought. The Holy Spirit is telling us today, if you are a Christian, know the fatherly love of God intimately. Intimately. So we started off tonight's talk by asking the question, what is the function of the Holy Spirit in our relationship between us as children and God as Father? It's this. The Holy Spirit fosters experiential intimacy. The Holy Spirit fosters experiential intimacy. Now, when we think of the word intimacy, I'm assuming for most of us, that's not how we would describe our relationships with our earthly fathers now, right? Nobody's going up to each other and like, how's your relationship with your dad? Oh, dude, so intimate. That does not happen. Nobody describes that way with hanging out with their dad. It's so, it's so good. It's so intimate. It's not happening. See, let's be honest. How many people here are weirded out by this term? Oh, we're intimate. Let's be intimate, God. We're weirded out by it, right? It's a little... Fifty Shades of Grey, it's a little romantic for us. I think for many, it's discomfort, though. It's, it's uncomfortability is probably in a lack of knowing. Again, misunderstanding leads to misuse, right? So, what we probably have seen even, and this I want to take it to another step further, what we've probably have seen by blogs and preachers is that intimacy is this magical form of supernaturalism. Like, all of a sudden, we're supposed to take our long braids and connect them to a white glowing tree, and like, oh... As an avatar reference, <laughs> I should be fired for that. Take that, James Cameron. See, a quest for a burning bosom, shooting stars and explosions, rather than joyful, inward, silent, struggling, dying to self-communion. So the simplest definition of intimacy between us and God is this. This is how you should define it. This is what I think is the healthiest. It's the experience of knowing and being known. It's the experience of being truly known and truly being known. This is what God wants. Jesus accomplished it. The Spirit makes it real. The experience of knowing and being known is crying out loud, Abba, Father, Papa. If you think about it, Los Angeles... Intimacy isn't something, you know, we're known for. I heard an interview the other day with an actor. I was trying to remember who, um, in light of all these horrific sex scandals, and they were talking about actors, everybody in the industry, they're there because they have something to hide, something to prove. He said this almost matter of the fact. No, we're here because we have something to hide. Actors have something to hide, meaning they're not known. They're not known, and they're not being known. So something Los Angeles, the West Side, we're a very shame-based culture. The majority of people move to L.A. to get away from their dad. I'll show you, dad. I'm going to get the gold, right? So most of us move here on the shame-based culture and guilt. So that shame, that fear, that's like Axe body spray. Like it's repellent. Understanding? Shame with intimacy is like repellent. You see, I wonder if it's safe to assume here that many of us fear intimacy because deep down, we do not think we deserve it. That's me. 
We're afraid that our flaws and our failures are bound to emerge from the basement of our hearts and make their way to our living space. We're so weary and fearful that most of our fathers have rejected us. Why wouldn't God? Our fathers have done it. Why wouldn't God reject us? Thus, it will hurt even more to lose intimacy than to never have it at all. Uh, Brendan Manning, one of my most favorite authors and preachers on the planet, he tells this small story, where, and I'll, I'll just say it. He goes, I remember a, a small story about a preacher who was talking to a hurting child, he said. And he said, the preacher was telling the hurting child, he's saying, can you, um, can you picture God, little boy? Can you, can you picture him smiling? Can you, can you see his eyes? And the boy said, yes, 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 I can see him. I can see his eyes. And the preacher said, what are you experiencing? What are you seeing? And the boy said, well, God is crying. And the preacher asked, why? Why is God crying? And the boy said, because I am afraid. You see, the irony in all of this is we frantically desire intimacy with God, right? In the same way that it's true for all of us. I'm very weary to always use absolutes, but I would say it's true for all of us that we do desire a deep, deep relationship with our Father. You wish it was healthy? I wish mine was healthy. It's like I would love an unbelievably healthy, right relationship with my dad. We all desire that. See, the irony again in all this is we frantically desire it, but we want to make that relationship with God on our terms. It is far easier to control the relationship between us and God, being about what we can do, our merit, what we offer, chained and enslaved to the idea that this is about what we do rather than who we are. Because if it's about who we are and then we get rejected, that would destroy us. But if it's about what we do, oh, we can control that. See, but a freedom to choose what enslaves us is no freedom at all. It's safer to us to be seen as employees, not children, with the living God. It's safer for us to want contracts, not covenant, with the living God. It's safer for us, like, oh, God, let me just stay busy. You know, give me busy work at church. I'll play, I'll, I'll do, I'll do whatever. Let me do that, rather than to really understand what the depths of unconditional love are. So because we think that way, or some of us might think that way here, I don't want to put that on everybody, but the, more, the majority of people think this way is because there's far, they have not known, excuse me, the far-reaching implications of the love of God and the gospel. Meaning this, I'm going to say this, that the gospel, uh, it's, it's just so easy to say, oh yeah, God loves you, right, okay, that's stunted truth. That's stunted truth to just say, God loves you. Oh, okay. What the Spirit whispers to us is what was accomplished through Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension is what David Powelson, author David Powelson, this is what the Spirit accomplishes and tries to tell us. He says, God doesn't love you just the way you are. He loves you just the way Jesus is. This is our status with God, Jesus Christ's status with God. This is our status with God. See, we are far more concerned about our sins and the basement dweller secrets coming up to the top than God is. We're far more freaked out by our sins than God is. Our sin has been handled with Jesus. God knows that. 
It's been handled. So cry out, Abba, Father. Be led by the Spirit. See, when we're loved with this sort of type of violence of love, you know what produces? You know what understanding truly the love of God does for us? Sets us free. And it seems like such an easy, almost elementary cliche answer. But here's, here's what it truly, truly means. See, the opposite of God's love is enslavement. But to be loved by God, to belong to God, ultimately means freedom. Freedom to hurt, freedom to ask for help, freedom to screw up, freedom to be broken, freedom to be afraid, freedom to be who we actually are, freedom to let somebody in, freedom to be known at our most basement of levels, freedom to not know what to do, because we are loved with an unshakable, unweirded out, unwavering, unchanging love. The Spirit fans in the flame and tells us and whispers to us, not, how am I to find God? No, 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 no. That's religion. But how am I to let myself be found by him? Not, how am I to know God? But how can I let myself be known by God? Not, how am I to love God? But how am I to let myself be loved by God? See, hopefully we're starting to see, I'm saying all that, so we're starting to see this that our level of intimacy, knowing and being known, is at your pace. It is at your pace. It is at your pace and it is at my pace. This intimacy sounds great. It's at your pace and your desire. In Genesis, after that dreadful day where Adam and Eve were completely tricked, convinced, and fell into the idea to, to eat of the fruit, what did they do? They went into hiding. And God comes down and he's looking for them and he's looking for them and he's looking for them because he wants to be around them. And then finally, what does God do? Where are you? Where are you? Ultimately, because the serpent tricked them that eternal intimacy was doomed. So the first time, so for the first time, they realized they were naked and ashamed. Sound familiar? Sort of that shame culture? They feared being seen and known and intimate with God. So what do they do? I get out of They hid probably like maybe so many people are hiding right now in this room. Now I bring all that up because here's the interesting part. God allows them and God allows you and God allows me to hide. Why? Because intimacy cannot be demanded. Intimacy cannot be bought. Intimacy cannot be manipulated. Our intimacy with the Father by the Spirit is derived from our own desire to come out of hiding. This is why the book of James in the New Testament says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. All right, I'm gonna end on some practicals. We need to wrap it up. Practicals, for you first, for you Christians. It's not about having a perfect relationship and then all of a sudden, intimacy will happen. Mm-mm. It's seeking to desire, understand, and accept this relationship. That is the intimate part. Working towards that, being, re- being ready to work towards that. That is the intimate part, okay? When this happens, things will start to change in yours and in my life. First part of that change, Christians, will come in what we pray for. This is huge. It'll start, you want to see change in our life? It's going to start changing right away in what we pray for. God wants to be known personally, 
personal essence, breathing in and out type Christianity is personal knowing. Everyday Christianity amongst the pots and pans is all about personal knowing. Thus, this affects our prayer life. Look at all the intimate prayers in the Bible. I'm going to read you one because this is incredible. They're asking for a greater awareness of knowing God over anything else. Let me read you Ephesians 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Then what? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What starts to change in our prayer life is, God, can you do this? Can you give me joy? Can you make this happen? Can you give me success here? Can you make, can you make me this house open? All these type of things. Now, it's not necessarily bad to ask, but what we see in Scripture is this beautiful thing that people are not asking for more of this, but for more of God. God, I, I need joy, so what do I need? I need more of you. It changes our prayer life. So tonight, there's going to be people on that back wall and people on that back wall who want to pray this over you. So whatever circumstance you have going on in your life right now, I don't need it, blah, 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 blah. Go to them, receive prayer about having God more and more within your life. Now, second, the second thing, again, I'm going to go through these quick for everybody, it will penetrate how we worship. Tonight in our time of response, we have a chance to worship in a variety of ways and postures. I will just say this, worship flows from love, pure and simple. How we respond, how we worship flows from love. I say that because what's categorized it this way. Um, weak love for the Father, weak worship. If our love for the Father is meager, meager worship. Does that make sense? Where our love is lax, our worship will be lax. But where our love is freeing and intimate, it will overflow. See, religion encourages us to worship tonight because of all the things that God's done. And that's, that's, there's something good about that. The Spirit encourages us to worship tonight, to transcend that, and to praise Him for what and who He is, despite if we've got what we want in hard times or in good. Okay? Make sense? And lastly, I'm just going to read a couple verses, and then we're going to pray. But I think this is one of the most beautiful visions of God as Father. It should be on the screen behind me from Luke chapter 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. The son tells God to pretty much get out of my life, can't stand you, give me everything I want, my estate, my money, pieces out. And on his way back, verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassionate and ran and embraced and kissed him. Talk about that for intimacy. When was the last time you kissed your dad? Right? This is, this is a deep, deep level of intimacy. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and, and put it on him and, and bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son, who was dead and is now alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. This is one of the most perfect picture images of God as Father within all of the Bible. Our communion tonight is a feast, is that feast and celebration. Christians, communion is for you. It's a double-stack cup, the bottom of the bread, the top of the drink, for you to come and remember what God has done for you, how God has received you. That is for us tonight. Now for those here who aren't adopted, for those here tonight who are rejecting God, for those here who tonight who are unchristian, unbelievers, and don't want a thing to do with God. Did you notice the word receive in verse 15? It says that so that we receive the Spirit as adoption. 
today, right now in this moment, might be the fullness of your time, this moment, this chance to receive adoption. Will you receive him right now by the love of God through Christ in the Spirit? We want everybody to make sure that when you think about Christianity, understand it's a decision about a personal and real relationship. And if any of us are thinking, yeah, but God, transcendent and big and massive and omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent, he's huge. How could I possibly, if you're on that end of the spectrum, how could I possibly think this way or receive this? You're absolutely right. How could any of us? But I'll leave you with this. How can anybody else receive? But I'll leave with this. Because on the other hand, who are you to then reject? Who am I to receive? Sure, maybe. Yeah, I get it. God's shown that. God's made a way. Who are you to reject? See, unlike a fairy tale, unlike a romantic comedy, the story of God does not guarantee a happy ending for everybody. These particular words in the parable, Romans chapter 8, they're confrontational. These are confrontational worlds, meaning... They leave every single one of you and I face-to-face with a decision, the most important of life decision, to receive God as Father or to leave and be enslaved, to cry out Abba or to reject Abba. Let's pray.